0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In three decades, we will share the Earth with more than nine billion people, people battling for food, water, and shelter in an increasingly volatile climate. Human rights advocate Mary Robinson talked to people already experiencing effects from climate change firsthand. Most live in poor communities. She wrote about them in her book, Climate Justice.
1: We're not on course for a safe world. We're not even trying hard enough to get on course for a safe world. And it does really put such urgency because I know who's going to be affected first and foremost, all of the people in this book and so, so many more.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from a book talk hosted by the Aspen Global Innovators Group. Mary Robinson's career is astounding. She spent her life in pursuit of a fairer world. She's a lawyer, professor, and reformer who served as Ireland's first president. She was also the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. But when she took on a new role in 2003, grandmother, her focus shifted. She was struck by the uncertainty of the world her grandson was born into. She set off on a journey around the globe. Her book, Climate Justice, chronicles the stories of community-level activists, mostly women, who are fighting for justice in this new, warming world. Robinson spoke with Peggy Clark about her book. Clark leads the Aspen Global Innovators Group at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held September 28, 2018. Here's Clark.
2: Let's just first begin with this book, Climate Justice. Um, I remember being with Mary in Tanzania, and you started talking about climate change issues. And so we started to try to find entrepreneurs, and she found Delight, which is a very famous mm-hmm. solar company. And sort of on the side, Mary was trying to educate herself about this issue. This was about maybe twelve years ago now, mm-hmm. and so there a lot has happened. But maybe let's begin with what does climate justice mean? And and I just want to take a minute to read from your book. And you say, if there is a climate ju- change problem, it is in large part a justice problem. Our continued existence on this shared planet demands that we agree to a fairer way of sharing out the burdens and
1: benefits of life on Earth. What is climate justice? Uh, it begins with the injustice. Uh, and the injustice of climate change is becoming more and more apparent. But maybe I should just step back a little bit and, and say, quite humbly, that I served for five years as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and I've never made any significant speech on climate because climate change was being dealt with by another part of the UN system. And I was in my silo, if you like, big silo, human rights, gender, um, people with disabilities, indigenous rights, but nonetheless a silo. It was when we started work um, in Africa on economic and social rights. And I was also honorary president of Oxfam. So whether it was realizing rights or Oxfam, I'd be traveling quite a bit in African countries. And I'd hear this sentence over and over again, things are so much worse. And when I'd ask, I'd hear things like, I think God is punishing us, because everything has changed completely. We used to have food, because we knew when to sow and when to harvest. Now, we don't have food. We have to go further for water, long periods of drought and flash flooding that destroy uh, the village. In uh, Liberia, where we worked, um, I would have breakfast with Ellen Johnson, because I had known her before she became president. it was delighted to sort of encourage her. We visited Liberia uh, quite a bit. And she, you know she would say, well, look, Mary, when I was growing up in Liberia, there were two rainy seasons. And they were as predictable to a day. Now, I don't know when the rainy season will come. I don't know for how long. I can't mend my roads. Um, so I became aware of this injustice. And um, it, it was really brought home to me by um, a hearing that Oxfam was organizing before Copenhagen. And he organized that uh, there would be tribunals. And I was actually, I think I had my elders hat on, and the elders that Nelson Mandela brought together. I was with the chair of the elders at the time, Mm -hmm. Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And we were just listening to five farmers from Africa. And four of them were women, of course. And one of them really stays in my mind, and she's the first full story in the book, um, Constance O'Kellett from Uganda, Um, uh, because I could see that Archbishop Tutu was becoming very depressed. Uh, He was hearing these stories one after the other. Um, And um, I remembered my father in the west of Ireland as a doctor, a medical doctor. I was his only daughter. I had four brothers, hence my interest in human rights. you know, um, when we went out, he would talk about the farmers. And, they, and, and, and then he would say, of course, farmers always complain about the weather, Mary. Always complaining about it's either too hot or too cold. So I said to this, these five farmers, I said, now, look, is this what it is? Are you just complaining as farmers do? And I remember it was Constance. Mm-hmm. And Constance always stood up to say something important. She makes a point of that. And she stood up and she said, no, she said, this is outside our experience. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it, Mm -hmm. Uh, because when you think about it, in a village, uh, an oral tradition, how long is that? Mm -hmm. I think it's probably about 200 years when you think about it, Mm -hmm. because the grandmother would tell the grandchild, and the grandchild would tell his or her grandchild. Mm -hmm. So that's a a span of knowledge at the village level. And so Constance Mm -hmm. became the first story in the book, um, how a terrible storm, um, rain in 2007, destroyed her village. But she formed a women's group, Milan, that's what happens, and fought back. And um, So climate justice is you know, it's multifaceted in a way because it recognizes the injustice that climate change um, affects disproportionately the poorest countries and the poorest communities, even poor communities in um, big countries like this. And one of our stories is about um, uh, Sharon Hanshaw in East Biloxi mm-hmm. um, after um, um, uh, Katrina. Katrina. She had a hair salon. She was a woman of color, her father had been a preacher in, in the civil rights movement, and somehow, you know when everything fell apart, she was the one as an activist who went around and tried to bring the community together in a wonderful way, always surprised by herself. and then she came to Copenhagen and met. Um, Constance, and they became climate-wise women. So that's the one side of it. The other side of it is, in order to kind of, um, in a development way, address that issue of injustice, we must make sure that the benefits of clean energy get to the all, that no one is left behind, that we prioritize the furthest behind first, all language in the 2030 agenda, Mm -hmm. and that we link that agenda with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And those goals, as you know, are to be well below two degrees Celsius and to work for 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. And I'll just finish by saying, you know, I have been in California for the California summit. Mm -hmm. I was in New York for the last um, week. Um, Most of it was climate week. Mm -hmm. I was at the One Planet Summit um, that uh, President Macron um, organized, and I heard for the third time in five days, Johan Rockström um, of the Project on Planetary Boundaries. And he's now become uh, a co-director of the Potsdam Institute. Mm-hmm. And listening to him, he scares the living daylights out of me. Mm-hmm. He really does. Because he's so on top of it. He's quiet. He's Swedish. And he just sets it out. And, <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> and it, we're not on course for a safe world. We're not even trying hard enough to get on course for a safe world. And it does really put such urgency, because I know who's going to be affected first and foremost, all of the people in this book, and so, so many more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For many of us, um, it almost appears exhausting. You know, mm.
2: there the, there have been 25 climate mm. talks. Um, the California summit was incredibly inspirational and empowering. But we also are, face the reality of the US pulling mm. out of the Paris Agreement. So tell us a little bit about, how some of the people in this book are influencing these policy discussions. And really, what is your own assessment of where we are in the policy framework right now?
1: We're not anything like as far advanced, and the minister knows this, as we need to be. In fact, uh, things are not good. Um, when President Trump announced he was pulling the United States out of the Paris Agreement, which he can't do technically until the 24th of November 2020, and we know when your next presidential election is. Um, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, in a way, it was very good that you had a huge uh, response to that in the United States. We are still in, and that was what was reflected in California in particular and made very visible um, uh, states, cities, uh, business, philanthropy, um, universities, trade unions, um, ordinary community, etc. It may help to meet the standard of emissions. Because frankly, the standard set by President Obama, because that was all he could do, is not that high for a very rich emitting city, um, country. Um, but uh, that may be met. But the uh, impact on climate finance, in particular, as the minister would know well, and on kind of um, just the mood. Um, things have slipped a bit. Uh, Europe is not stepping up enough to the plate. And you know there's all of that kind of worry. Um, What can people do? I mean, one of the things in the book, there are two stories of, um, one is of um, Anatole Tung, the former president of Kiribati, Mm -hmm. uh, who went to Copenhagen and came back in despair to tell his people they have not agreed to stay at 1.5, we have no future. Mm -hmm. And he decided to buy land in Fiji Mm -hmm. so that his people could migrate with dignity. Imagine having to do that. Uh I'm a former president. I would Mm -hmm. hate to have had to go back from a conference and tell my people, your island is not going to survive. And so he then became part of this high ambition coalition, which helped Mm -hmm. so enormously to get the Paris Agreement with this important fair language that was in it. Another one that I really like is Natalie Isaacs, Uh um, a woman from Australia who had a cosmetics um, business in a small way. She was middle class in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And her husband was involved in environmental issues. And as she said, he was a bit in her ear. And she decided um, to see what she could do in her own household by becoming more energy efficient, um, by you know turning off lights, pulling out plugs, doing all that. And she found that she actually, in the first little while, saved 10% of the oh. budget. And she could bring it to 20%. And then she had this, what she called this light bulb moment. <laughs> and she formed one million women. And I'm a yeah, member that's of that's one million that's women. That's I don't know if anybody that's else that's here, that's here that's is. That's and she's done a lot to promote. But I now have a podcast, as, um, as uh, Peggy is aware, um, and um, I'm doing this podcast with another Irish woman who's based in New York, who has done a lot of podcasting. I didn't even know what a podcast was a year ago. <laughs> I'm an elder, for goodness sake. But, um, but, you know, I wanted to communicate the message, and this is about communication. So is the podcast. They're kind of aligned. And um, the, the byline of the podcast is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution mm-hmm. and we make it clear you know man-made includes women it's generic maybe mostly men but it includes women we've also contributed we're all contributing to emissions and um, a feminist solution definitely includes men mm-hmm. so you know we're big but um, what we uh, what I wanted to say in, in answer to your question you know what can you do yes. is the impact it's had on MAVE. Yeah. Maeve has withdrawn her money from Chase Bank. Right. She has a great story about that—a mini, a bonus thing where she rings up the bank about <laughs> their investment in fossil fuel, and eventually they hang up on her. <laughs> um, she has um, uh, she has plants in her um, apart- um, house in our apartment. I think it is in Dublin um, on, on on you know windowsills and things. She has. Tried, and I'm trying as well. Were, we're aspiring to vegetarians. We're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> as I said, oh, you know, Nick's
2: probably a, yeah. Well, he's barrier. not he's not helping. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and when I'm faced with lamb from the west of Ireland, <laughs> you know, it's hard. But anyway, no, it's the way we have to go. And you know, she really has uh-huh. um, understood that everybody has to kind of respond to this. But that won't be enough. Um, mm. it's it's good that people would take it seriously. It's good that young people would take it seriously and get very mm. angry and get in touch with their politicians and vote the right way and you but we actually need the government policies and that's And we need need a carbon price globally. That will shift things faster than anything else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear you have a comedian with you on your podcast. because She's she's drawing me to the dark side. She's (laughs) drawing you to the dark side because Mary's very serious. You know, we'd meet for breakfast at 6 or whatever, and, you know, we'd have 42 policies we needed to address. So I'm eager to hear that. The name, so everyone can watch it, is called Mother's of invention. Mothers of invention. Just remember,
1: necessity is the mother of, of invention. So mothers of invention. So yeah.
2: so let's talk about mothers, and let's talk about what you just said about a feminist mm. approach to, to climate change. And I think for me and for many, many in this room, um, your life is a testimony to the power of women. And, and you are a hero to so many women here today. What what does women's leadership look like in the climate negotiations right now and even go so far as to tell us a little bit about what you mean by a feminist approach to these issues
1: mm-hmm. or what's needed? Well, I'd like to pick up on something that you said earlier that I meant to follow up on, and that was um, creating space for women, particularly grassroots women, to be at the table. Mm-hmm. And um, we formed um, a troika plus of women leaders on gender and climate change in Cancun, which was the... Um, conference on climate after Copenhagen. Everybody remembers Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Then you had a series, uh, several conferences before Paris. And the first one after that, and, and more power to Mexico for getting the whole thing back on track again under the UN system because Copenhagen had really been a failure. Mm-hmm. And um, in Cancun, um, my foundation was involved... No, it was actually... Yeah, well, I, it was kind of a mixture. A mixture I, I just formed the foundation and Realizing Rights was... A, so it was a yeah, two-pronged. Um, with Heather Grady as well, our colleague. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we brought together on a platform um, the three heads of the three conferences. Uh, Connie Hedegaard had uh, presided over Copenhagen before she became the Climate mm-hmm. <coughs> Action Commissioner of the EU. Um, Tricia Espinosa, who's now head of the UNFCCC, it, it was the... <coughs> Minister of Foreign Affairs of uh, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the following year in Durban, which you mentioned, Peggy, um, it would be Mighty Mashaban. Mm-hmm. And when those three women were up on stage with me, um, I think it was from the floor, mm-hmm. the current president of the General Assembly, Maria Espinosa mm-hmm. of Honduras, no, sorry, of Ecuador, mm-hmm. said, why not form a Troika plus of women leaders on gender and climate change, mm-hmm. which we did. Um, we all, it was m- mainly um, female ministers of environment, energy, foreign affairs in some cases, gender in some cases. Mm-hmm. But, and it was a loose organization, and we actually invited some men, some male ministers, mm-hmm. but we kept men in a minority. You know, <laughs> This was gender and climate change. And um, we expanded the group, and I managed to persuade the United States ambassador for women to come to Durban, despite the fact that her staff were telling her, "What the, why, why would you go to Durban? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Milan came and became, of course, an active and proactive member of the, um, of the um, Troika of Women um, on, on Gender and Climate Change. And what I wanted to say was, after we had um, rallied and got uh, the Doha miracle the following year on gender and climate change and working for the Gender Action Plan, we then realized what these women had to do was find a place in their delegation mm-hmm. for grassroots women, for indigenous women, for young women, mm-hmm. and bring them to the table. Mm-hmm. And this was very powerful, because when you have somebody like Constance speaking as she does, when you have Agnes Lena, a pastoralist, Maasai pastoralist, mm-hmm. I think you remember her coming to one of, those, uh, of our meetings of gender and um, uh, troika plus, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's such a powerful voice. Mm-hmm. And this was what was needed. Because frankly, the delegates very often don't know the grassroots story. Mm -hmm. They live in these halls with their acronyms and their UN speak and the blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they don't actually have to fight like this um, to cope with the terrible, unexpected, and threatening Mm-hmm. W- world that they're now facing, and to hear those voices is really so important. It was good to hear them in California, and mm-hmm. um, because there weren't too many of those voices, and most of them were women that the yeah. Troika Plus or that my foundation had been bringing to conferences, and now are confident and mm-hmm. that they can they can say that piece.
2: So, Mary, are you saying that some of the fundamental decisions that a family or a community faces about agriculture, about child rearing, about environment? are in the hands of women, and that sort of the doorstep of a woman is the place where these things are happening. Because it's quite striking that when you found the child got people, what do women's rights have to do with the environment? Mm. Um, similarly, when we started, they were the environmental community was not very interested in talking about reproductive health, which in fact is related to population, which mm. is in fact related to family size. But it, it feels to me that you're bridging mm. across mm. these divides, mm. and that you see women as the center. Um, is this a part of the solution? Because as my husband who's an environmentalist was always saying, environment's always off to the mm. su- people don't care enough mm. about it. So mm. does your bridging across these different sectors help with that?
1: Yes, I think you know, in a you know, it's it's a pretty obvious thing that women change behavior in the family. Mm. You know, not least with children, and then sometimes children educate parents. That's also happening, and I'm very glad that young people are really taking this issue much more seriously. I think there's a difference. It's true now that in Africa, women's leadership takes climate change extremely seriously. It's, you know, when you go to a meeting of women leaders in Africa, it's top of the agenda. When you go to a meeting of women leaders in Asia, it's top of the agenda. When you go to a women's leader meeting here, um, it's Me Too, it's equal pay, it's empowerment of women, it's health, it's education, and maybe climate change. You know, the connection is not there. And that's why this book and the podcast and my, (laughs) any efforts, because I do have this sense of urgency. I mean, you, you know me as an Irish mm-hmm. grandmother. I, we now have six grandchildren. The eldest is 14. They will be in their 30s and 40s in 2050. Yeah. They'll share the world with about 9.5 billion, people were told. Um, so that's mm-hmm. why your issue of family planning is so important. Yeah. Um, and... You know, there's already so many stresses in so many parts of the world on food, on water, et cetera, and, and social cohesion. And we're not in a good place at the moment because, you know, we saw a divided UN again, yeah. Um, yeah. particularly. Um, a certain gentleman, whom I won't even name, (laughs) disrupting things. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. So Mary, so let's go back to to this notion of justice and climate justice and um, human, again, bridging between the human rights world Mm. and its mechanisms and approaches and the climate change or environmental world. And you've been at this now for some time. So I'm curious about how that's going. And I I just want to say, um, for many people, the human rights approach is a very theoretical one. It's about morality and about the basic rights. But when we started realizing rights, I remember distinctly, we put an advisory board together and we were with Jeffrey Sachs at the Earth Institute, and he said, so Mary, how can I sue Malawi or Mozambique or something? And Mary said, no, walk back. But it is true that the, 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 the tools of human rights are very often in international uh, Mm. covenants and in shaming and Mm. sort of calling out. How is the human rights approach more than a theoretical Mm. idea in the negotiations Mm. that you're in the midst Mm. of every day?
1: It's a very good question, and it was the work of my foundation on climate justice over the last um, number of years. It was absolutely at the heart of our work. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring human rights and gender into the climate world. And I must say, when I started, and my first cop was Copenhagen, I was shocked at the male environment, despite these female chairs, Mm -hmm. and the lack of any perception of the gender dimensions of climate change. If you undermine poverty, just imagine the burden you put on women. And the roles of women and men are different. So the impacts are different. And yet there was no real interest in gender until we helped the constituency. There was a constituency of women, but they somehow couldn't get their voices heard. And it helped to have this troika of women leaders um, working with them. And so getting gender into the climate world, getting human rights in, we needed champions because my foundation wasn't there. Costa Rica was a champion. Mexico was a champion. Mm-hmm. You know, European countries were, were, were champions. Mm-hmm. The Philippines was a champion. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And they would then fight for this, and we fought very hard to get all of this language into the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. At one stage, we almost had human rights into the operative part, wow. but some of the big countries... Developed and developing wouldn't have it, so we got a very good preamble, mm-hmm. um, and we got gender into the text, which is which is good. Now, the other work we were doing was getting um, the Human Rights Council to take climate change more seriously, and it was the Maldives who originally seized the Human Rights Council with the idea that climate change was having huge negative impacts on the exercise of human rights all over the world, and this was in 2004, mm-hmm. and so you know, uh, to, to build that. And somehow, um, for various reasons, the ball had kind of been dropped. Yeah. And again, we weren't at the table in the Human Rights Council, but we were able to work with countries that would become champions, yeah. which is what we did, and NGOs that would become yeah. champions. So it was very nitty-gritty... Um, Practical, um, very focused on, you know, uh, wording. We 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 helped with wording of a number of resolutions, but nobody ever knew whose fingerprints were there. You know, um, in order to work in both um, arenas. Right.
2: So, do you think there's still a lot of potential, given that the world seems to be moving away from international frameworks of governance, and and there's a, a trend towards nationalism? And are you still seeing that there? is a lot of potential. Yeah,
1: I, I think we just need the kind of fight back that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. Look at Jacinda Ahern, mm-hmm. yesterday, Ardern um, of New Zealand, whom I got to know in New Zealand and were friends. They, um, she, bringing her baby into the UN, for one thing, was another um, first. Mm-hmm. And um, she made a wonderful speech yesterday about we two, not ah. me too, we two, meaning human solidarity. Very mm-hmm. strong, and she was very strong at the um, um, uh, One Planet Summit, um, the day before and she's part of supporting with 300 million from New Zealand for the Pacific islands in her vicinity mm-hmm. in other words she's not just for New Zealand she mm-hmm. knows that New Zealand has to be much more helpful mm-hmm. so she's walking the talk and then talking the talk very yeah. very well yeah. at that level look at macron look at we need leaders yes um, they, um nothing has changed with the 2030 agenda and the paris climate agreement with the goals are still the framework that we have to work on, that mm-hmm. the framework for the future of our world, basically. And we just have to take it more seriously. And, you know, I am a bit encouraged by um, Copenhagen, uh, sorry, by California. And, mm-hmm. that, you know, um, uh, when I, I, I was lucky enough yesterday on the podcast, the, the series, I think it's um, Monday, the latest podcast, wait for it, will drop. <laughs> Apparently podcasts <laughs> drop. <laughs> and... We had a wonderful conversation yesterday morning at seven thirty in the morning because that's what happens during these conferences with Christiana Figueres Mm -hmm. and um, Hilda Heine, the president Mm. of the Marshall Islands. Mm. Uh, You can imagine it was just a brilliant conversation, and Christiana, as always, was on the optimistic side. Mm -hmm. You know, she was saying we have now. The the investment, it's switching. We have now the technologies. The clean energy is getting cheaper and cheaper. We have now, et cetera. And so that's always good. And then you had um, Hilda Heine, Mm -hmm. um, whom I had had breakfast with at the same hour the day before, um, talking about not only her own country, the Marshall Islands, but she is the chair of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, 48 climate vulnerable countries, yeah. many small island states, but also Bangladesh, um, mm-hmm. um, Nepal, you know, the, the, the vulnerable yeah. countries, uh, Ethiopia, et cetera. And um, uh, they're going to have a virtual summit in, on the 22nd of November. And that's the first time in the world that there is a virtual summit on climate change. What does it mean? Um, I had great fun with Maeve because Maeve could have said imaginary summit, you know, <laughs> being, being a comedian, you know, but that, that's, that's what she does to make us all um, uh, laugh again. But um, a, a virtual summit means no emissions. You know, it's very, very yeah, clever. And funny. the UN can learn. We can all learn. California can learn. We can all learn. Um, uh, and they're going to get um, over two days because over a 24-hour period because, you know, you got from from one end of the world to the other. Um um, uh, heads of state, heads of organizations, heads of business, et cetera, um, doing partly video and partly live mm-hmm. um, to support um, climate-vulnerable um, countries. And we had that wonderful conversation. And um, just in case the men in the room are getting nervous about mothers of invention, <laughs> we've, we've had our first male mother of invention, Kumi Naidu. Um, oh, I'm sure he's pretty yes. well known to you. And he, we had to do him separately for, for scheduling reasons. So we did him before we did... Um, uh, um, uh, Christiane and Hilda, but, but I'm not quite sure how they're going to do it on the, you know, the thing. So, But we did actually do our session with him beforehand, and he was great. And it was the day that he was going into the UN um, on the Monday um, for the Peace Summit in honor of Nelson Mandela. And of course, as elders, we were very involved in that. And he um, Grasse Michelle spoke on behalf of the elders and spoke very well, very movingly, but very toughly. Mm-hmm. And Kumi spoke afterwards, and he did not pull his punches. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's yeah. he was speaking not on behalf of Amnesty International, which he's just become executive director of, but on behalf of the whole UN um, NGO mm-hmm. um, contribution to oh, to the peace summit. And, um, so he, it's he, these emerging you know, leaders that are you know, when you've got a platform like that, you mustn't must, pull your punches. You must
0: yeah. exactly, <laughs> so. exactly right. It's Aspen Ideas To Go, thanks for listening. Today's speaker, Mary Robinson, is featured in our sister podcast, The Bridge. She speaks with the CEO of Sustainable Energy For All, Rachel Kite. They talk about why climate change is at the heart of the women's movement and women's rights. Find the episode by searching The Bridge from the Aspen Institute in your favorite podcast player. Coming up, Tilmiza Hussein, a Maldivian climate activist, shares her story with Mary Robinson. Here's the rest of today's show. Peggy Clark. This is a really wonderful book, Mary. Thank you
2: for it. I think everyone will really love it. And uh, there's so many beautiful stories here. And I just wanted to mention this one. There's this young woman, Vu uh, Heen from... Uh, from Vietnam. Vietnam yeah. And and her organization is helping indigenous communities to get ownership of forest lands so that they can uh, manage them in a sustainable sure way. Yeah, I'm sure he, I told him he needs to read the book. Everyone needs to read the <laughs> book. But it's it's um formal ownership or usage rights to the forest so they can hmm. serve as custodians. And and she says um you say that by putting people in local communities at the heart of forest management, he has empowered people living on their very front lines of climate change. And she says, when you work with vulnerable and poor people, you must believe them, she insists. Poverty does not equate with stupidity. These people have their own knowledge, their own technology, their own systems. These are the people who can protect and save the climate, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um, The planet. And part of
1: the forest is actually now no longer subject to logging, Ah. subject to, because because they they protect it. You know, they they actually cover, and they told me, and uh, also, there was a wonderful, I asked one of the women, um, she, she volunteered for us to speak, and I had to hear her through translation. And basically, what she was saying was, what's wonderful about this is, I was so shy, and I didn't think I could speak as a woman mm-hmm. until I joined this group. And it just it was based on the right level to enable yeah. women. And I had only one opportunity to ask her a question through translation. And I asked the question, I said, Will your daughter be as shy as you? Well, You should have heard her glowing answer. No way. You know, having seen me, she's not going to be. You know, and that was lovely. That you know, you could feel an empowered woman is going to have an empowered daughter or daughters or oh, and sons. Great. And you know, it's, it, was, it was really nice. Beautiful.
2: So, so talking about people who will save the planet, I want to invite Thelmaza Hussein to come and join us up on the stage. Um, Thilmisa is the co-founder of Voice of Women. Um, we're happy to say she's an Aspen New Voices Fellow, so I had the opportunity to work closely with Thilmisa. Um, she's been, been quite, a, quite a force and a power for this issue. And the two, Mary and, and Thilmisa, I think represent hope for us all. So I've invited both of them to ask each other questions. So we'll have a, a bit of a conversation between these two, and then we will open it up to all of you for questions.
1: Well, I'm all warmed up. Will I yes. start? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'd like to start yes. with when we first met, yes. when you were the deputy perm rep. Yes. And uh, it was under Mohammed Nasheed, yes. who was such a champion. And of course, things changed for the Maldives um, with election. And uh, I met Mohammed Nasheed when he had to, um, he eventually got to London, more for medical reasons, out of prison. Yes. And um, I, I met him a number of times over the years and tried to support his But are you hopeful that there's now a new election in the Maldives? That yes,
3: yeah, so after six and a half years, we finally won the fight to restore mm. democracy. We just won the election on Sunday, yes. and uh, we are waiting for the election commission. Though mm. we we won by we got fifty eight percent support, yeah. we had a ninety percent turnout. Uh, water turnout, so this is Hear like that, a American. lesson best, that, yes, <laughs> that uh, I think uh, Americans have a lot to learn from us, <laughs> and uh, we're waiting for the current regime to uh, pave way for smooth mm. transition. so they're refusing to pave way, so it's in a stalemate right now, so we hope that our international partners can continue mm. to put pressure, and uh, I also want to say at the time when um after the right after the coup, for the past six and a half years, the new government they have rolled back on all mm-hmm. our environmental mm-hmm. policies, the progress that we made, mm-hmm. and uh, the head of state didn't attend even mm-hmm. a single climate conference, mm-hmm. single UNGA session. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was pretty depressing and uh, sad for us. Yeah. But now <laughs> the new president Ibrahim Buhari. Is uh, a climate champion as well. He has pledged to put climate change on the top of his agenda, on the development agenda. And will agenda, Muhammad Nasheed
1: so be able to go back?
3: Yes, he Good. will be. Everybody mm. who is in exile mm. will be able to return home mm. finally. So mm. we are very, very yeah, hopeful. Yeah.
1: And we were on a panel together at the Paris yes. Agreement. Um, tell me, tell me honestly what you think of the Paris <laughs> Agreement, and especially what you think of the implementation coming from a, a small island. You know that's. Done a lot, but it's a danger.
3: So, if you want me to tell, speak very, very honestly. I do. Please. I do. So, we went to Paris with a lot of hope, and mm. it was a long process yeah. from Copenhagen yeah. to Cancun mm. to Paris, and being in the as a being a negotiator, was, I was a negotiator, mm. and then in Paris, I was from the civil society because I was not in the government anymore. But it was um, we were really looking forward to it, mm. but. I understood when the Paris Agreement was adopted, everyone was celebrating. And I understood why it was such a historical and important mm. event uh, day for everyone to celebrate. But at the same time, I really cried as well, mm. because uh, 1.5 is where we really need to be, was only an expirational goal and mm. the pledges on uh, the commitments on the Paris Agreement was Mm. very weak, Mm. and the framework was very weak, so it was heartbreaking for me to see that option of such a weak Mm. agreement on such an important issue, Mm. but nevertheless, I saw it as an important Mm. step forward.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, you know that in a few days' time, I think it's on the 8th of October, the International, um, IPCC, the International um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is going to come out precisely with what Paris, Paris Agreement asked it to do To say, what do we have to do to stay at Mm -hmm. or below 1.5? Do you think that will help?
3: So um, last month I was back in the Maldives. Yeah. And open your Mm hands. So uh, my nephew gave me these are cowrie shells. Yes. They wash up on the beach of the Maldives. Mm -hmm. It was used as currency until up to 13th century mm-hmm. in many countries around the world. Mm. So we have like we have a history, mm. we have a culture, yeah. we we have like really really deep connection to our islands, and it's at the brink of being. Mm. Um, it, it can disappear if we don't mm. take urgent action. And the, the IPCC report that is coming out, it actually. Uh, says that we have a very, very, very small window of opportunity Mm. uh, to mobilize Mm. uh, urgent action Mm. to address climate change, Mm. to to increase our ambition. Mm. And I don't want my islands to disappear. I want to take my son, I have Mm. a six year old son, back to my islands. Mm. I want my nieces and Mm. nephews and my entire family lives there. And we want to live in these Mm. islands Mm. and people are Thriving in the Maldives, Mm. people are passionate about what happens to our country. As you saw in the elections, we're not like just laying back and waiting somebody Mm. to come and save Mm. us. We are doing our part. We people stood because uh, we had a repressive government. People stood in line for eleven hours mm-hmm. to cast their ballot. Mm-hmm. People traveled yeah. long distance. The mm-hmm. nearest ballot book for me was in London, and I was because I now live in New York. I flew to New, uh, London yeah. to cast my ballot. Mm-hmm. So many people travel. We take our responsibilities very, yeah. very seriously, yeah. and I think uh, that's one of the questions I want to ask okay. you. about. What do you think? Uh, is the uh, the civic engagement and uh, the relationship between civic, importance of civic mm. engagement and climate change. Mm. How do we mobilize people around the world, especially young people, mm. to take part in elections, yes. to make this difference mm. because we cannot just say individual apathy is yeah. the greatest threat to climate change. Mm. It is not. Mm. It is uh, we have we need policy shifts, and mm. in order to make those policy shifts, we need to involve yeah. young people, and mm. we need to get yeah. people in.
1: No, I absolutely agree, and th- I'm I'm kind of encouraged that that's been a conversation that I've been, you know, having in California very much during the meetings there. Um, that sense with young people of the Nexus investment, you know these are young who um, have inherited wealth, mm-hmm. and they have a big organization I hadn't met them before um, um, and are they Nexus or yeah Nexus, I think isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, and um, they have put up a billion dollars this year um, to address how communities are um, um, you know, working, and they want to do it bottom up as best you know. Yeah. They, um, um, with Kumi Naidu of Amnesty, we were discussing how do we make the links across, I think you were picking up on this point as well, um, human rights, gender, um, indigenous rights, climate change, it's all the same now. You know, it's all part of, and therefore we have to bring the social movements and all the other movements together and put young people front and center. You know, so there are, I, I see, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. I see pieces coming together more but I don't see the women's leadership in this part of the world, in Europe or here in the United States, taking this on in a way that we need. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that, you know, Milan, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but it is something, you know. And including, you know, um, I, I don't see um, you know, a women's leadership in Congress on climate change. I don't see any leadership. Virtually in Congress, unlike climate change, everybody's keeping their head down, right. um, and uh, you know that's that, that's also a pity. Right. But but I, I have great faith in young people, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think they do get it, mm-hmm. and they get it with that sense of urgency, Absolutely. you know. So. Yeah. Um, uh, the trouble is, we have only that short window of time.
3: Yes. Uh, when I read these reports on climate migration, yes. uh, talking about climate migration, the report, the World Bank report, uh, mm. puts the estimates around 400 million thousand people. Uh, for, sorry, 400 million people that would be uh, displaced due mm. to climate change by 2050. That's like in 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. So that that makes me really anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not able to deal with uh, f- tens of millions of people right now mm-hmm. as refugees or um, with the migration. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, this is like the biggest humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. we have on our hand with mm-hmm. tens of millions of refugees. Mm-hmm. But how do we deal uh, in a world where there would be, 400 million people who become refugees or cross-border migration or even internal migration. Mm -hmm. So how how do we address that? Because Mm -hmm. that would be like a problem we would be facing Mm -hmm. in the next 30 years and that we would Mm -hmm. have to address.
1: Well, both in wearing my foundation hat and wearing the elders' hat, Mm -hmm. um, we have been really trying to signal this very strongly Mm -hmm. in the context of the fact that there is this global compact on migration now It's the first time, actually, that the UN has been prepared to work on migration together. In my time as High Commissioner, we couldn't get that. We got an intergovernmental panel, Mm -hmm. uh, I think. But Mm -hmm. now we have the Global Compact, and it does recognize, and we were part of insisting that it would climate-displaced people and climate-displaced communities, Mm -hmm. because with climate displacement, it will be whole communities that will have to move because they can't live there. It won't be individuals as much, whole communities. It's happening already. Um, And... Uh, if we can't manage migration better, then um, we are going to have a huge crisis. I mean, you're perfectly right about that. And this is what I talked with um, uh, Mave and myself on our podcast yesterday morning, talked with Hilda Heine. And she mm-hmm. said, um, I am told now by so many scientists um, that you know, our islands will no longer exist by 2030. Mm-hmm. She's now trying to get support for what she calls adaptation, building up the mm-hmm. islands. You know, so that they can and I know Maldives has done yeah. some of this as well. But it's an awful, you know, pressure on a people yeah. and, 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 and pressure on so many people. So it's it's a very big issue and we're not um, we're not thinking long term. What I what I what my foundation the last thing we've tried to do and we're still trying to do is to get the UN to give leadership on future generations, mm-hmm. to have guardians for future generations who constantly remind, mm-hmm. constantly stay in touch with the scientists and with economists like Nick Stern mm-hmm. and look at what kind of world in 2020, in 2030, in 2040, in 2050, and constantly, you know, because then maybe yeah. we'll start taking it seriously. At the moment, you know, the, the span of politicians is at the most five years, you know, yes. <laughs> it doesn't help. You know, but,
3: um, uh, one last question. So, uh, I saw the General Assembly speech of certain heads of states yeah. and said that he would not recognize or be a part of the global compact of hmm. mi- on migration. Yeah, yeah. So what would that mean as we adopt the global compact on migration?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bad and bumpy time at the moment um, at the multilateral level, but that's why I'm saying we need those who fight back because the frameworks are still there. Yeah. It, it won't be as effective if a big country... Is not going to participate in yeah. it because others may follow. Yeah, you know the Australians and the other, you know, kind of edging around yeah. as well. You know, so it, 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 that's the difficulty. And um, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, even on the Paris Climate Agreement implementation, it has slipped because there isn't the driving that yeah. there was. Even the alliance of the U.S. and China pushing each other, that's no longer there. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, 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 there's there's less um, sense now. Um, I would say that business and um, uh, cities and states are stepping up more, and interestingly, I'm hearing more about the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, from business leaders and from leaders of cities and leaders of commun- than I'm hearing from government top level. You know, the, the governments don't seem to be taking on the responsibility in quite the same way that other. Thing. And we do need to bring that whole agenda together, you know.
2: Mary and Phil, um, I am beyond honored to have you with us. This has been a lot of fun this morning. So thank you so much.
0: Mary Robinson is the author of Climate Justice, Hope, Resilience, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future. Talmiza Hussein is a former deputy ambassador to the UN from the Maldives. She's also an Aspen New Voices Fellow. Peggy Clark is a vice president at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held by the Aspen Global Innovators Group last September. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.